Hello, my fellow wrenches and wrench turner leaders. Welcome back to the Wrench Turners Podcast, the show that's about improving the life, well-being, and productivity of mechanics everywhere. I'm your host, Mr. Joshua Taylor, founder and CEO of WrenchTurners.online, the business providing content, training, and digital products for service leaders and mechanics everywhere. This week, we thank our sponsor, Fixed Ops Marketing. Create and distribute as many automotive service department videos as you want, as often as you want, for one low price with prestige. Reach out to the folks at fixedopsmarketing.com to schedule your demo today. On today's show, we chop it up with a pair of hosts from Service Drive Live, Joe and Eric. Yay! Today, we get into trucks, vets, or vipers. Starting at the bottom, if they don't prank you, they don't really love you. Raw honesty, building camaraderie, and communication. Let's get into it. Yeah, so basically want to get those uh, four questions answered. So uh, because neither one of you are currently mechanics and you either haven't or won't or haven't dabbled in, uh, it's more of your, why did you get into automotive? Secondly, what was your first year in automotive like? Third, uh, what have you been doing ever since? And fourth, the, the kind of the key ingredient to all of this is what's one piece of advice, one tip, one hack, one something that you could give to the mechanics out there that's going to help them be happier tomorrow and every subsequent day after that you have learned or have taught or whatever the case may be. So if we can get those four answered, all the other banter is gravy, but those four tidbits so that we can get context and then what life is like, we're good to go. So, because I, I'm, I, I'd like to hear it first. I want to hear Eric's uh, first three first, and then we'll dig into Joe, and then we'll do the last one for both of you afterwards. Rock and roll, man! Do it. So, Eric, why did you get into automotive? You know, um, up until right before we began talking today, it's the cars. Never stop looking at them. Uh, never stop appreciating them. Uh, right from the beginning, um, I just have a passion for vehicles, and there isn't one specific car. Um, classics, luxury, off-road, dropped vehicles. If the movie's about a car, I'm going to be watching it. Um, the cartoons. It's just such a passion that I have. And Did you say cartoons? I did say cartoons. Okay. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a big deal. Um, but it combined that with when I was growing up and going through school, I wanted to become a school teacher. That was something that was sitting in the back of my head um, and connected with, you know, building and learning how things work. I mean, you put that all into the automotive world and it's going to work, loving what you do, loved every single day. Um, it, is it all... You know, beautiful every single day? No, it's not. There's challenges to it. Uh, but I think that's actually what's fun after looking back at it now is uh, seeing how much growth and how much challenge there is and then seeing the evolution and that you're in it day in and day out. You never fall back. Um, so to me, the reason why I got into it was 
literally because of the love for cars. Awesome. Do you remember what specific, If there, it may not have been the reason why you got into motive, but what's the first car memory that you have? That first drool moment car. Um, so many, but I can't. I can't tell you the first because there's so many that kind of oh, blend in with you each gotta, other. You've got to dial in on that first one, man. Well, if I really go back and I think, um, when we were kids coming up, um, pickup trucks were a thing. And to this day, they still are. Um, but I could always remember um, one of the neighborhood guys, you know, the most popular guy, had a Chevy 454 SS pickup truck. And mm, there's so no, clean. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Oh, <laughs> cleanest, polished wheels, the exhaust. We would stand there after school until we seen it go by. And, and he, he never, ever, ever, he just, he drove so slow all the time, right? And he never right. ran any revs, and he nev no, never did any of that. No, there weren't burnout marks at every stop sign. No, of course not. Exactly. <laughs> Joe, what was yours? What was, your, what was yours? Because it may, um, cars may not be the reason why you got into motive, but you definitely, I know you have one. Oh, no, I did. When I was a kid, when I mean like a little kid, like six, seven years old, my mom and dad uh, got me a t-shirt. It was a red t-shirt with a yellow Corvette on it. And, uh, You've talked about that. That's I, right. I, yeah, I was, and it was um, hell back in the day. That would have been a '78, '79 Corvette with the big swoopy front end and everything like that. And that was it, man. I was a Corvette guy ever since. Still am to this day. And, so why aren't you um, driving one now? Well, I'm not, but I I will be. <laughs> I still got a couple. Of, I got a couple of kids in the house, but I will be. Um, Fair enough. And it was, uh, that was it, man. It was that red t-shirt with the yellow Corvette, and I just couldn't get enough Corvettes, man. I just couldn't. I was, I, I was not, I didn't start with the domestic uh, as much as I fell into the Mopar family, because um, my grandfather and my great-grandfather actually started Sheffer Sales and Service in 1932, I think wow. it was. Whoa. So he was a Plymouth dealer for, and it was a Plymouth dealership until 1983. So they closed the shop in 83, in October of 83, a month before I was born. And I didn't find that out until many, many, many years afterwards. But uh, yeah, he was, my grandfather was a, a Plymouth mechanic. My great-grandfather was a Plymouth owner, a dealership owner for like uh, 20 years before he passed. But all five boys um, worked in the shop at one stage or another. Uh, so my first love wasn't wasn't uh, an old Mopar. It was actually a new part. It was, it was a Viper. It was the very first mm -hmm. car that I remember thinking about, like truly thinking about. And I have one up on the ledge. I don't, can you see it? Can you see it? Can you see it? Can I even squirrel it over? There's yeah, a Viper there up there on the go. top shelf. Yeah. That would have been my, that Viper, that very Viper, he bought me, I was probably nine, eight, nine from Costco when when you could get them from Costco in little boxes and I thought it was great to play with them and that would have been worth money had I not played the shit out of it. Anyway. <laughs> and then I found out what old Mopars were. And then I found I out what, what old what, Mopars you weren't exactly, were. You weren't exactly wrong with that Viper because man, what was no. it, 94 Viper? Was that? 94, baby. Right? 94, OBD, not even OBD, I mean, like 94, just eight liter V10. They didn't even have just, air conditioning. No, 
It was fantastic. It was just an engine with four wheels, and it was just incredible. I worked for Dodge too, and it was awesome. And it, so and it's cool. eight liter V10. So think about it perspectively. Like even a inline five four liter. Like that was basically the two Jeep motors side by each, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a. And that's basically what it drives like. It's basically a really fast Jeep. That first '94. Oh yeah. And they got it evolved over time, but anyway, I I digress. It so yeah, it was much, a Viper like, for me. I mean, but it, it, wow. it evolved so much they didn't make them anymore. Yeah, unfortunately. And, that's it, right? and then and then he asked me <laughs> how I got into the car business and why. I mean, this is it right yeah, here. This the, is the, yeah. the conversation. Exactly right. So yeah, there, there's and there's, but it's it's interesting to have everybody's origin story as it as it were as a why we jumped in, because then we get we get commonalities of the the family and and the historic memories that we can bring up the reasons why passionately and emotionally we get into into the business, yep. and that leads that leads to the next question is that what was your first year like and because you're jumping in because you love cars, was that first year what you expected? And what was that first year actually like? Well, my first year was uh, washing, drying cars. You know, same thing, leaving them the shiniest, most amount of tire shine on those spot deliveries. Um, it was just, to me, it was. I, I love going into work every day, uh, grabbing the spot deliveries and, and having um, that, being able to make that person impressed whenever you delivered a vehicle, pulling it up and just seeing their faces. And I actually would think, yeah, I'm the one who washed it for you. I'm the one who cleaned it. Look at how nice I left it. And the process of washing a car, I mean, I still hold true to it to this day, is you wash and then you, you leave it wet. You put your tire shine on first so that while you're drying the vehicle, the tire shine could soak in. And then you clean the wheels at the end. Because then at that point, all the You're tires... You're covering your face, man. If this guy's so passionate about cleaning cars. <laughs> like, that is why those cars go out so exceptionally well. He came up with a process that works flawlessly, and he loves it. I know, but it, it's... <laughs> it is. I, I'm not... You know, my, if, my son was hey, two if, and a half years didn't... old. And I was teaching him if how to wash If he wasn't so cars. successful as a service manager, he'd kill it as a detailer. Oh, he, he, yeah, he, he, he washes my car excellently. But it was it was exactly <laughs> what I expected it to be. <laughs> I just got that. I just, <laughs> you didn't do such a good job this morning, Eric. <laughs> but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, the first year was everything I wanted it to be. Um, you know, there was Cobras. Um, Cobras. There was Ford Lightnings. Uh, which is till still to this day one of my favorite vehicles. Um, at the time, there was you know big lifted Ford trucks coming through, and I loved it. I loved every second of it. Awesome, Joe. What was yours? What was yours like? It, it it's no way that it's the same. Uh, well, it is to a degree. Um, it was. Um, I mean, I, I was washing cars, right? I mean, make no mistake, I was a porter. I was a porter at the local Chevy store, and I washed a lot of cars. This was a Chevy store that was gigantic in the Midwest of uh, outside Chicago. They were doing 1,400 cars a month. I mean, it was gigantic. And we washed a lot of cars. But, I, I, you know, it wasn't so much about washing the cars for me. It was the camaraderie. Um, because we really, we had a big crew of porters back in the day 
and it was a big lot, all sorts of stuff. I had, and you know, I knew this, I knew the technicians, a lot of the technicians. Um, and then I knew the sales guys too. So it was really, and this is, I'm a 16 year old kid at the time, maybe 15 even. So I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just an innocent kid. And so I was telling Eric this. So I get a phone call back then, back in the day, the sales staff would call up on the phone and the phone would ring in the wa in the wash bay. We used to call it the wash rack. They it ring back there. Like, Hey, yeah, this is uh, such and such. I've got a, I've got a spot delivery. Come on up and get it. Okay, fine. So you'd march up and get it. You'd wash the car, you deliver it. You do all the, the shiny stuff that Eric did <laughs> and then and you roll up there. But we had a guy who decided that he was going to tell me in the middle of one of the biggest monsoon rainstorms we had, hey, uh, yeah, Joe, yeah, I know it's your first week on the job, but I got a really big job for you. Yeah. Um, I've got a school bus in the back. All right. It needs to be it needs to be cleaned up. Now, we were a Chevy store, so we did some heavy duty stuff and that sort of stuff. But I mean, thinking back, I never saw school buses. He's like, I don't remember the last couple of numbers on the stock number, but just go out there and tell me what it is. I'm like, uh, uh, okay, okay, sure. There's no school buses out there, man. <laughs> no school buses. I mean, this, uh, this guy could have this guy could have sold me an elevator key. I mean, <laughs> and there was no second floor, you know. <laughs> I'm like, you know oh. what? And he gets, so he comes back. He 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 walks his ass back in the gear, and he's just, hey, uh, <laughs> did you find, did you find that school bus? <laughs> oh man! And I'm just, yeah, you're you got dripping, me. right? Yep, you're absolutely dripping. Oh, right? I'm right? soaked. I mean, soaked from head to toe. And I'm like, because it's a 12 acre lot. I mean, it, it, oh, he got me. Stupid. You were out there for a while. He got me. Beautifully, so I have an appreciation for the um, for the rushing of uh, of of the whole thing. You know, hot, what what is it when they break somebody in their fraternity? Was it rush week? I mean, that that's what happened there. You know, I mean, I, the hazing. The hazing when, happens, and the prank the prank the, the pranks happen. And it was and innocent enough. And he got me. And it's the line though. One of the things that I found, and and I didn't I didn't. I washed cars from time to time, but I only did that when the detailers were so overwhelmed because we were banging out cars left, right, that I ever really got into washing cars in my first couple of years. Um, I was I was productive, so they wanted me being productive, making money, rightfully so. I'm in the shop; they're paying for stuff, and and they're you know all the rest of the stuff. I'm slow the first couple of months, whatever, whatever, but. The, the camaraderie amongst the five of us as apprentices in that particular store got real thick real quick. And that, you know, the pranks on each other, and they were never, and, and one of the things that I've heard in other places and in, in other industries that the pranks occur and the hazing occurs, but it's never rough. No. It's never no, it bad. It's never, um, I have not heard one single story that you wouldn't do to your son or your daughter Correct. as a friend yeah, at abs home. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's good fun, but nobody would ever do it in a, in a way that would hurt someone or be bad. And that's one of the things that I want to make sure that anybody that's coming into the trade that realize that, yes, it happens. Yes, it happens everywhere. You might be offended by it, 
that means it may not be the industry for you because we do that out of love and care and camaraderie. the word right we out of my mouth. do it. Yeah, it was. Like, it, we don't do it for any other reason. And this same guy that, that did that to me, later on, he, he gave me his Camaro Z28 ragtop uh, demo to go putz around in for the evening, right? Because he knew he got nice. me, right? He, he, he got me. Exactly. But, but here's another example of hazing, and, I, and I'm sorry I'm digressing a little bit, but so I had this guy that was working with us, and his, this guy's name was Fred. And Fred had a glass eyeball. It's fantastic. And he was a rare individual, and he enjoyed himself, and he, he was just a quality individual. And he was a porter. So Fred, my very first day on the job, Fred picks up a screwdriver and says, hey, I don't think this is a real metal screwdriver, and taps his glass eye. With the oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, hey, that's one way to tell you. I'm like, holy cow. But at the same time, all right, that's my first day. The second day, Fred takes a jump box I, and waits for me to walk around the corner, pulls out his hair, right, and then combines the two, the, the jumper, so there's sparks everywhere, and he goes, uh. What? It was, I have such great memories of that, but that's how I entered into, into this great industry that we have, and it, it, it's so pleasurable when I think about those times, because they were good times, man. They were good times for a kid who was they making were some of the best. 325, 425 an hour. It was fantastic. I wouldn't trade them for the world. I got some of the best and advice coming in. Um, I had an uglier prank, and but you know, they came up and they told me, "Look, man, if they don't prank you, they don't love you. They love you, right? That's it." He goes, "They go," and and it it you know turned turned it around, and you know taking jokes and. And being able to be in that environment and be able to have a very light attitude about it and, and appreciate the joke, not the joke made at you, um, is actually a fun world. No, it, it, it opens up such a nice light day for yourself. It did. It did. It. And, re and realistic speaking, it goes deeper than that. You, you can get in full-on, full-blown uh, um, insult rounds, and if they aren't doing that, you don't have their trust because n nobody is willing to do that kind of language and i mean deep language for sure with just anybody because they have to feel comfortable enough to know that what you're saying isn't true like when you walk into the shop and you go hey fuck face hey fucker what's going on and you can't do that with just anybody uh, no, you can't you do can't. that with somebody new no matter how unfiltered we are as mechanics for the most part you can't do that with just anybody you have to build trust over time and even even as a young person coming in, it's hard to understand until you spend a week. The first week is hard because you really don't understand anything. You don't understand anything at all. But when you realize that there are certain guys in the shop that have zero filter 24-7, they will tell you anything you want to know, but they will tell you completely unfiltered. Those are the guys you want to talk to, no matter how much it offends you to start because you don't necessarily understand the context of where they're coming from yep. those are the ones you want to talk to you don't want to talk to the quiet one in the corner for the most no, part that's he's until you get to know them 
he might be writing a manifesto. <laughs> but he might be also the most intelligent person in the shop. Typically is. The most experienced in the shop. Absolutely. But you have to get to know each individual and how they work in the shop as quickly as possible. Because if you don't, you're not going to have fun. I, I tell you what. That, you're not going to enjoy yourself. That camaraderie that I talked about was was crucial for my progression in my career. And especially when dealing with technicians. Um, because if, if, if that honesty, that raw honesty that I learned at being a porter, that translates very well into dealing with technicians because techs can smell bullshit a mile away. And if you try to fill them full of bullshit, it's just not going to work. But if you're honest and you're true and you let your guard down a little bit to maybe have the prank call on you, mm -hmm. then that's a big deal. You, then, then we need you, to trust leadership. That's it. Then you get all the buy-in and you can have a real honest conversation with those folks. And that's a technique that's built up for them um, while they're while they're working on vehicles, because think about how much BS they take on those repair orders that may not be true, that they're trying to cover up what's really happening. So they become masterful at sniffing out that BS and calling it out right then and there. They would have to because their time is their money. If they're, if they're down, down bullshit, it's crazy. And that's on paper. Now imagine being able to see it live. I mean, they're able to just tell you right off the bat that you know, this person's Yeah, this not. guy's bullshit. Exactly. And it, it gets, it can go deeper than that. And one of the things that, that comes up on a regular basis is not necessarily being able to commute, being able to translate that paper work order, that digital work order that's in front of them on the screen into what they actually need to do. And what has happened is, yes, the trust happens in the shop, but the trust through the, the glass into the drive-through isn't always there. No. It's a real challenge for many mechanics because most of us don't have any education outside of high school. And most of us didn't do very well in high school, let alone English. And English is only how to actually read the words for the most part and how to string a sentence together so that it grammatically works, not that it actually means something. When you're trying to communicate, you're, you're at least two steps deep before the technician sees because the customer is trying to figure out what's in front of them so they communicate to the, the service advisor. The service advisor is trying to make it work on the page so that there's a hope of getting paid by warranty if it's a warranty claim or a hope to translate into the technician that's going to read or, it. And if it happens to be or, the, not the technician they expect it to be. Or the advisor's trying to get it to get it on the page so they can get to the next customer, which does the cust which does the technician just an absolute disservice. One of the errors that 100%. I made um, half half of my beginning life as an advisor was trying to fit in with them, speak the same language, act like them Ooh, the text I, or yeah, the customer? No, the text. And yeah. I was trying to, no. when I would bring an RO, thinking that I was being as professional as I can for them to understand my language, didn't realize how fake it was coming off. And once I was real to the situation and saying, look, I simply don't know and I need you to teach me, um, I understood that it was a, a better communication line. I didn't have bad intentions. I was simply trying to fit in as an advisor and intimidated by their intelligence. And sometimes you don't realize that that's what you're doing until they all hate you. And then you realize, wait a minute, um, that's not what they're looking for. And then you just basically say, look, man, I don't know what I'm talking about. I need your help. Yeah. You'd be surprised what that does for you when you're just blatantly honest that way. Agreed. And it's, for me, one of the things that I've had a big challenge with over time 
and especially in that first year and through my apprenticeship was I've always been able to carry conversation at a much higher level because I read and I consume a lot and I've always consumed a lot. We go back to 2000, 2001, no matter how arrogant, ignorant, stupid I was back then as a young kid, I still was fairly well read and I was always amongst uh, adults as a kid. So my vocabulary is more than most. So when you get this 18, 19, 20 year old kid and even now as an older as an older individual, when you have somebody who's capable of understanding and using precocious, expedient, um, expialidocious appropriately in a sentence, mechanics on a whole don't necessarily get that you're one of Can them. Can you use expialidocious in a sentence, please? What? How do you say that? Oh, Mary Poppins could say it flawlessly <laughs> forwards and backwards. So you, even as a mechanic myself, my ability to communicate is sometimes hindered by my more adept way of communicating. If I can be more specific, I want to be more specific so that the customer understands the work or while I'm writing as a mechanic or whether I'm writing as an advisor or whether I'm correcting it as a service manager. It's hard to communicate with mechanics who haven't been educated. So getting their communication level up is so vitally important. And sometimes it's the important part isn't necessarily educating mechanics or educating advisors. It's being yourself which will help you communicate. And that you found out simply by stop trying to say uh, uh, the driveline lash is a little bit more than the customer understands. Like, and the technician's probably going to look at you and go, what the fuck are That's you talking it. about? <laughs> That's it. Like, I know what driveline lash is, and but that doesn't make any sense. And then sense. you go, wait a minute, I'm trying to make it, it make, easy for you. Does it clunk into gear? Yeah, and you're, you're like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And hey, there goes the relationship. Hey, hey Josh. Right. I got to, yeah. dude, I can't believe it. I, I gotta... think that I can communicate well. And I think I've made so many errors as an advisor in communicating with technicians. And I, I see your... I see your experience, I think that's a great word for it, your experience as a technician and the communication portion of it. If we actually bring that to light and not put it out there, you'd be surprised how many technician and advisors we could help because there's so many of them like me. It wasn't that I was being fake. It was that I wasn't, I was trying to fit in. I was trying to be part of that camaraderie. Because it's a really, really mm -hmm. cool club. The technician club is such a cool club. You go back there and they got awesome toolboxes. They're fixing the cars that you love. You know, you see the beautiful Audis out around the rack and and all the shiny snap-on. Jealousy is real. I'm sorry? And jealousy is real. And what some mechanics don't see, that the ones that have never done anything other than a turn wrench and they've never been behind the desk is that once you get behind the desk, even as a mechanic who was there, uh, once I got behind the desk, I didn't get to drive anything. Even if it was from outside in the parking lot into the damn bay, I didn't get to drive anything. I had to go out of my way to find excuses to get in those bloody customer cars for a road <laughs> test. And actually understand I what did everything I possibly could. Yeah. 
just to un- it's like I, I I don't understand what you mean by the sound. I I let do you mind? I'm I, I'm I'm a mechanic too. Do you mind if we go for a road test? And of course, I already knew what it was because the way to describe it's like things like it sounds like an airplane's it taken off when I the faster I go and 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 it I it it, it right. bearing like it's I just write down replace the right front <laughs> wheel bearing. I could probably write on the on the work order, but I gotta make sure I gotta make sure that this this. You know, 2012 SRT4 caliber that we got to go out and test drive, and because the noise happens at 85 kilometers an hour in third gear, which just happens to be great, you know, RPM for the boost to kick in at 12 pounds. <clears throat> so, uh, 85 yeah. pounds an hour in third gear, huh? Uh, eight, sorry, 85 kilometers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 85 miles an hour in third gear. Then holy. <laughs> but that's not quite. Remember, I'm exactly, Canadian. Exactly. I'm Canadian. But that's that's exactly <laughs> I, it. I, that that communication that both parties want to have, both the advisor, both the technician. But the technician is like, right. "Hey man, drop the BS." And the advisor's like, "I just want to fit in, or I just want to make it right." And and boom, it's hard. Like it's really hard because advisors want to help the customer, and they think they're helping the technician. And yes. in fact, many of them are actually making it worse. I have to make years of is- mistakes. And thankfully, many managers were switched before they figured out how not good I was and allowed me to continue growing and making mistakes and actually perfecting and cleaning the mistakes. Um, but I had the opportunity to be able to correct that um, without getting fired, call it how it is. Um, mm-hmm. And over time, I realized that I remember it took one technician snapping on me in the middle of the shot. I mean, he tore me in shreds and I had already been there a while. Um, now some of the th- things he said weren't cool, but the overall message was like, "Hey, if I continue down this path, this is what I'm creating." Now he came back and apologized mm-hmm. time later, and he said, "Hey, look, I shouldn't have said those things in the shop, but here's what I see, and here's what you're doing, and this is what I'm not receiving." And that's where I was like, "Oh wow, I didn't realize that oh, I was causing more trouble." And it gets, and you, if you look at that a little bit deeper, there's a couple of things in there that not everybody's necessarily going to get. So, one, you weren't getting the leadership that you needed from those in charge. Your service manager, your fixed ops, whoever was there, they weren't reviewing with you often enough and communicating with you often enough about the things that aren't necessarily revenue-producing things. Right. You probably regularly getting well. Your ELR is this, and your hours per row is this, and your penetration on your MPIs is this, and da 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 da. All of those stats that they can easily track, and things like your your you know CP hours per row is this, your warranty hours per row is this. But they're probably not asking. You know, I looked at the last 15 work orders you wrote, and every single one of them had at least one no fault found that came back. And another advisor wrote it, and they figured out the problem. And it's obvious that you're not writing either what the customer is saying, or you're not listening, or you're not able to communicate properly. The, the driver was always just reviewing the language. Yeah. The the training was always on the driver the of profit, not on the indirect driver. And Correct. the indirect driver is just as important on training the social skills between the front desk and the shop to profitability as it does to the direct driver of ELR, uh, total sale numbers, whatever it is that they measure hours per row. Um, 
mm-hmm. the indirect driver is learning how to communicate. And that driver right there can create such huge profits and such a less stressful day for everybody involved. I'm, I, I would love to figure out a way that I can help advisors and technicians if I could figure out a way to track profitability based on language because there's a, a line somewhere between your fixed first visit that I bet that you could also change not necessarily by improving processes in the shop but just by changing languages that are used in the drive through to technicians or the languages that the, the, the service advisors need to do in order to communicate so that there is a, a more consistent sets of languages because every advisor is going to be a different every technician is going to be different they're all going to communicate differently so having a standard metric language based on uh, a concern area whether it's a, a, a system whether it's a powertrain complaint rattle in my suspension when I go over bumps right Right, but it's a, it has to be almost like a series, a specific set series of words used that are required to be acquired from the customer. For example, if you have any noise complaint at all, it has to be vehicle speed, atmosphere, environment, has to be is there any accessories on, and it has to be one of the... Uh, agreed upon in a shop because every shop can be different. Agreed upon noises for that set, so that you can start getting a consistent set of of descriptions for an and that's noise only, because NVH is so well, subjective. What you're it's talking crazy, about but, though is, and, and I apologize for having to take off like that, but what you're talking about really is customer diagnosis, right? Exactly, but, but getting there's a flowchart and there's questionnaires for that for words. Sure. But it's, they're never as clear as they need to be to the tech because the tech is going to get, um, in, in my experience thus far, when those word flow charts are used, and I've seen them, I've seen them from Dodge, I've right. seen them from Dodge Mitsu, was, I've Dodge seen them from very, Subaru. Very Dodges, even if they were used successfully by the service advisors, they were never used by all of the service advisors. It was never a point of communication during meetings when the techs met with advisors. It was never consistent between advisors, and how it was used on the worker was never consistent. And so that that even that. And think about think about the culture in every shop. I mean, every every shop is different. You have. Just management. Just start from there. You got management that not everybody trains. Many of them don't even communicate. You have a technician who is going to explode whatever diagnostic tree you try to create. And and just, just because it's not that specific way, their specific way. Or you have the lead advisor who says, no, I'm not doing it. And he's your profit source for the service department. And there's so many different cultures to create something like that that's followed by all i'm not saying it's impossible but it's difficult because there's something you got city you got rural you got suburban well but here and you you could you could have every advisor follow the exact same verbiage and the technicians are going to look at it differently one tech is going to look at it differently than the other so i mean that that consistency of of um of diagnostic uh questions 
it helps, mm -hmm. but it's not the hero all end all. But I tell you what, I've seen some no, really, really good like diagnostic questions, like tree questions for the you know interview. They call them an interview for the customer, and they are fantastic. Mm -hmm. To your point, they're fantastic. Well, when followed, but then it's a management, it's a function of management to make sure that everybody's on the same page with the results of that. And here's and here's where that consistency, how. And this is where I don't know. This is out of my depth. I've led some teams, successfully or unsuccessfully, that's that's for them to have determined at the time. But I've led teams and getting everybody on board is a challenge, especially mechanics. Because it's I wanna make sure that they're they're better in their day and happy in their day, but sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You've got a tool like those word charts that the advisors, if they're using them, even if they're not using them well, if they're using them, it means they're trying. So the last thing I want any mechanic to do, especially myself, is to, to look at somebody dead in the eye that's trying, that's used a tool that's been given to them by management and say, you don't know what you're fucking doing. That's not the appropriate way to communicate. And I've seen it time and time again. We have to, as mechanics, stop being fucking assholes to the advisors that are making the effort. We have to, because it's across the board on any of the communication most not all but most of the time it's we're telling them that they don't know what they're doing or they don't know how to do this or they don't know how to do that you're right they don't so don't be a dick about it educate so, if you aren't getting the information that you need ask for but, it but here, and, and to your point let's look at pay structure okay so an advisor typically in it typically gets a uh, a commission and they typically get some sort of a salary the salary is based off of the group performance typically i mean it might be just a, a straight salary for that person it might be an overall share of the service department there's lots of different things but they typically get paid on two functions mm -hmm. actually three functions they get paid on their sales commission they get paid a salary and then they typically get paid a csi bonus what do technicians mm -hmm. get paid on their time they get paid Flat on rate. their own damn time almost across the board now there are some concepts with team and sharing of hours and splitting of hours and that sort of stuff but that's very few and far between mm -hmm. some can people some people even say it's communism but when you get a technician who's only responsible for himself or herself and they're the value in the information they get coming from advisor who is not just responsible for themselves, but gets paid on everything else as well, there's a, there's a disconnect there. And I think that causes some issues. And the issues that, because I think techs and advisors should share the wealth. I really do. I think they should share the wealth. Now here, that's not to take money away from a technician because that, that's never a good idea because they're the backbone of the business. But give them, Give the technicians a little bit of teamwork bonus. Give them something else besides their their just sole proprietorship of their work. And that is an absolutely wonderful thought. Thought is right. If we could yeah. make it... Execution and thought, is entirely different. I use that different. very specifically. Execution is entirely different. Now, as a tech, currently, and past, as a person who's also behind the desk, getting that implemented in any way successfully is going to cause and ruffle all kinds of feathers. Best intentions, but it's going to cause all kinds of ruffling of feathers.
So that communication, that incentive to communicate well, is going to be hard to get to. And the biggest thing that that I forget, throw all the rest of that at the door. The biggest challenge, forget communication. The biggest challenge that the entire service department has in just about every store I've ever been in, whether corporate or private or independent, body shop or tech shop, or even little power sports shop like I'm in now, is why. Very little, if any, conversation is ever had on why. Why do I get paid like this? Not what or how I get paid or what it's determined off, but why? And I can almost answer that across the board because that's the way it's always been. Sure, for sure. Whenever Period. there's the answer to a question, and that's the, that's the wrong answer. Correct. That's the best way to, to fail in business is to do it the same way you've always done. Now, are there successful ways to, if it's been done a long time, is it a successful way? Yes. Making glass hasn't really changed in thousands of years because it really only can be made one kind of way. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. Is there other alternatives? Absolutely. In this circumstance, having a share of the skin of the game of being able to educate and train and coach those that are providing you with your income, meaning the advisors, is a great way to make sure the entire team wins. Correct. Bar none. Cool. Um, that was quite heavy. <laughs> now that we've, now that we've uh, changed I don't think the we need entire to get pay structure of the automotive industry. The structure of the entire yeah. service industry. Let's... Ooh, that's the end of today's episode, my fellow wrenches. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for this part one. I can't wait to share the rest with everyone next week. Subscribe to the Wrench Turners podcast on your streaming service of choice to make sure you don't miss the next episode when it drops on Wednesdays. Are you an automotive service manager? Do you know if your team's inability to perform has something to do with trust? Well, the Wrench Turners Wellness Survey could help you identify a lack of trust in your department. It's not a bad idea. Email me, Joshua, at justworkhard.com to set up a free discovery call today. Lastly, I want to leave you with a very simple quote. Until next week, consistency is the foundation of true trust. Either keep your promises or do not make them. Roy T. Bennett. Thank you very much for listening. Hope to hear you back here next week. And remember, Always clean your toys before you put them away.